This podcast is brought to you by Ideate and Execute. Do you want to drive innovation in your organization, futurize your enterprise, ideate massively valuable new products, or execute them to market? Then contact us today at ideateandexecute.com and get started. Why listen to the past when you can listen to the future? Welcome to the Think Future Podcast, broadcasting from deep in the heart of Silicon Valley, California. We focus on innovation, startups and the future, not necessarily those and not necessarily in that order. Here's your host. So thanks so much for coming on the show. This is great. Yeah, uh, no problem. And thanks for sending me those those notes because that's really helpful. But um, maybe we should just like start off with just tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, uh, who you're with and and uh, go from there. Sounds good. Well, my name is Danielle Carnes and I work for Edmonds College. My role with Edmonds is uh, I'm the Vice President for Innovation and Strategic Partnerships. Um, it's a little bit of an unusual role. I don't have a lot of counterparts across the country that have uh, VP of Innovation on, on a college campus. So um, in terms of, of colleagues, I'm, I'm always excited to meet anybody else that's a futurist or um, looks at innovation and disruption and, and kind of tries to apply that to their industry. Um, right now, my, my, you know, I look outside of my industry for those colleagues, um, but look forward to more, more internal as well. Um, I've been at Edmonds College for about um, five years, and um, I have my my master's degree is in student affairs and higher education. So um, this is what I went to school for: is working on a college campus and trying to help students um, the best I can navigate higher education and achieve their goals and um, leave our our doors or leave our gates on the other end with what they came here to get. Um, yeah, so I'll start with that. And we're in we're in just outside of Seattle, Washington. Oh, fantastic. And how long have you been around as an institution? You know, the college is about 50 years old um, and we started as a community college. We were, um, a, you know, people often assume community colleges as a two year granting institution. But of course, you have shorter and um, sometimes longer certificates, depending on if people have to go part time. Um, but we just started offering bachelor's degrees um, two years ago. So we have applied bachelor's degrees, which are a little bit different than the traditional um, history bachelor, bachelors of history or English at a four-year institution. Um, so applied degrees, applied four-year degrees are, um, they're like a two-year technical degree plus two years more of advanced learning um, in their technical field. So they're, they're applied degrees that are four years long. Um, so we just offered those two years ago and changed our name to Edmonds College. Um, and here we go. We just changed it this year. So we're off on our new adventure. Nice. Nice. So you're saying, is it like, so it's less theoretical than you'd say at a typical, typical college, typical university? I'm sorry, less theoretical? Or? Yes, less theoretical. So it's more practical or? Oh, yeah. Yes, I would. Um, I mean, we have our, we have both professional and technical programs, but also like transfer programs. So lots of students traditional community colleges are sort of comprehensive in nature. They, you know, students come to you for so many different reasons. Sometimes it's they want to do their first two years of their core credits and then transfer on to university, right? That's that's your, that's a, a certain audience, a certain um, student type. 
But then yeah. other students say, you know what, I want to start with you, but I want to be out and ready to go in the workplace in two years. So they're yeah. looking for a more technical degree. So there's a little bit of both um, that are kind of thrown in the mix. Yeah. Yeah. No, my, my, my son is at Davis right now and he did two years at De Anza before he, he went up yeah. there. Yeah. So it's a very, very similar concept, but uh, I mean, if you typically, when you go through, when you go through one of these colleges, I mean, you do, you, you, that, those are the two paths you take and what make, what's the difference between um, the kind of education you get in one path and the other, is it more GE for one or, and then you do the applied stuff later or. Yeah, that's how I would describe it to parents and students as they're setting out to make their decisions is, you know, what's your big goal of, of always starting with the end in mind, like where is it you want to go and end up at? Um, and if you want to be, you know, an anthropologist out in the field, I'm probably going to say you should probably go for a four-year degree or higher a master's degree. And here's your path right. to get there. So I think it depends on like what their end goal is. Um, but there are, you know, there, the benefits of, of starting with a professional technical degree is that you get hands-on in your field right away, mm -hmm. um, where you might be your first quarter taking classes in electronics or engineering, um, you know, robotics quarter one. Whereas I think if you start at a four-year college, sometimes you don't get to your, your major courses until you're in your junior and senior year of a traditional four-year right. pathway. Um, right. So there's, you know, that two years of core credits and then plus your pathway credits um, down, down the road. But in a, in a community college, you often get those pretty quickly right out of the gate. Right. Well, that sounds like a pretty traditional path. So yeah. you're telling me you're, you're disrupting that path, or that sounds like what you're looking to do. Yeah. Uh, what, kind of, what do you, what do you see as something, I mean, obviously uh, COVID and all this stuff has disrupted the in, in-person learning, but what kind of disruption do you see that coming down the pipe that, mm -hmm. that is yeah, hitting it first? Yeah. There's been a lot of um, attention on higher education and how we as an industry are being disrupted. And that's, right? That's not new for any lots of, you know, many industries before us have been disrupted and many more after yep. us will continue to be just going through their own level of disruption, which usually starts with the, with the user experience and, and customers or the student needs in our case um, changing. And so they're telling us that um, they need something different by voting with their feet. So what we see right now across the country is um, many colleges are facing um, you know, declining funding with state funds, but there's a public perception too of is college worth it? So I think mm -hmm. that's what's happening across the country. Families are wondering, you know, this used to be the path. This used to be the way after high school, you just go to college and you get your degree and then you go off into work. Um, I think that worked for a good segment of people, but if everybody goes down that path, there's, there's also been this fallout since then of people that are coming out of four-year programs with loads of student debt, with um, degrees that are hard to get jobs in. You know, you hear the trope about the, the person with a four-year English degree that's working at Starbucks, right? Yeah, so exactly. those kinds of stories start coming up and, and people thinking, you know, maybe it's not worth it. Maybe this isn't the best route to find a career for me. And so, you know, and to boot, I'm going to come out with $60,000 in debt. Right. That's not appealing for a lot of families and a lot of people. And so I think that, you know, when the public perception starts to change, they start looking for different models and different options. And that's where disruption, you know, is born is like, is there a different way to do this? Right. But is this um, the same? It's the same. But I mean, I can understand that happening for things like, you know, top tier schools. But I mean, you, you, your, you've, your schools have always focused more on the practical anyway. So, I mean, mm -hmm. are you still seeing that even in your space? 
Mm-hmm. Well, we are poised for, yes, we are seeing it in our space um, and we're paying attention to it possibly earlier than other colleges, I would say, mm-hmm. um, because of our president's vision on the future and, and helping us all to encourage um, thinking about envisioning our future and then planning backwards, right? Of like, how are we going to get there right. and do this differently? Because there's been some, you know, speculation that one out of three, one out of two, you know, different kind of just, um, it is speculation. I don't, you know, nobody knows for sure that of colleges that are going to close their doors in the next 10 years because of the, of the, the academia can sometimes be the stick in the mud that wants to do it the same way we did it 200 years ago yeah. or 500 years ago. Or, you know, and if, and if we don't stay relevant, if we don't keep up and if we don't shift with the student needs, then we're not going to stay relevant and they will go somewhere else. So what's happening right. for us in the community colleges, a lot of times students will get pulled into either for-profit institutions because they have incredible marketing budgets right. that they can lure students with promises of fast track degrees, short-term programs. We can get you where you want to go quickly. Faster, faster, faster. Faster, faster, right? Everybody wants that. Um, some of those for-profits, for unfortunately, aren't always very you know, credible and um, don't set students up for success and then in the long run. But some models right. do have staying power. So you know, there are several public um, options for you know, competency-based education or learning at your own speed where you, you know, you're if it's something that you know from your background, let's say you're a veteran and you come out of the military with 10 years of experience in something that counts. And so, yeah. you know, when you're able to jump ahead, it speeds your process. So mm-hmm. we are looking at all of those, um, those avenues and saying, where can, we, where can we get ahead of this and be ready for it um, and position ourselves so that we're not reacting and we're not just at the end of 2020s in the, you know, when 2029 comes around, we're not going, oh no, no, the sky's falling. Um, what do we do now? All the students are gone. Right. So I think that's our forward, forward thinking. Well, it seems to me that education's in this stuck in this uh, monolithic tendency where you've got to go to school for a certain chunk of time, right? So you, you like, you come out of high school and then you go to college for a certain amount of time. You have to be there for two years or four years or however many years. And then that's when you start working right after you pick that up mm-hmm. is there any thoughts towards looking at a more modular approach where you say okay you know let's let's chunk it up it's kind of like right now it's like it used to be uh you know you would be at home and that was your leisure time then you'd commute and then you'd be at work and then that was your work time and now of course <laughs> everyone's working from home so everything blends together yeah have there been any, any thoughts to do doing something like that some kind of disruption of the monolithic educational model yep Yep, there have been. So there's definitely um, conversations. That, there was an article that I um, think I linked for you around um, the 60-year education model that Stanford is um, sort of looking at and kind of exploring what are some of the possibilities with that. But it's it's a lifelong learning model. So instead of assuming that you're going to do one career for your whole life, because nowadays most people change careers five to six it times, right, matter. in their lifetime. <laughs> so the idea of going to school for one thing for four to six to eight years and then you don't need any more education for the rest of your life, isn't, doesn't fit the career track, right? So yeah. what if we were to change the model so that you do you know, just-in-time education blocks, just like you're suggesting, and do you know, one year here, you go into your field and you kind of you know, work for a while, and then you come back to us and you do your next level of, of training or preparation um, for your next phase of your career cycle, or you could switch tracks and um, 
and that way it's just much more of a of a modularized across your lifestyle your lifespan rather than four years done never go again yeah yeah well because you have those i mean especially for something like highly technical like a coding right you've got these coding boot camps that are 12 weeks and and at the end there's a lot of you know there's a lot of applied work i'm obviously it's not a full-blown software education because there's plenty of pieces missing, but it might be enough to get you into, into work. And the interesting thing about the coding profession is that like 75% of them are self-taught because the, the industry moves so fast mm-hmm. that what you're picking up in, in college is really just the foundation. I mean, you know, what's the next language? Like JavaScript, Python, blah, blah, blah. It's yeah. like you have to know whatever's hot at the moment because if I went to college and I learned Java, you know, I, I might come out couple of years later and Python is all the rage and, and yeah. I haven't picked it up my yeah. personally, then I'm not there. So how, how does education stay in, in, in tune with sort of like the job market, which has been, some, uh, you know, a hard, it's a hard problem, right? Yeah. Because you've yeah. got the time block for education, but at the same time, uh, sort of like the jobs are a moving target. Yeah, they absolutely are. And they'll say, you know, that 50% of the jobs that students are going to be working at in 10 years don't exist yet. So how yeah. do you stay in front of that as a college and help educate people for jobs that you don't even know what they are, right? So, you know, there's a few ways we do that. One is advisory boards. So we, we have um, advisory boards for all of our programs that are made up of industry members um, and they advise us on our curriculum and what they need out of from employers and in the workforce and what they need more of or less of. Um, so I think that's that's one way we go about it. But I think another way is that the old model of education assumes that it's about content transfer. Like you said, with um, if I'm going to go to school and I'm going to learn Java, and then I get out and Python's the new thing, if all we did was teach you Java, you'd be out of luck. And that's what a yeah. lot of the skills-based programs are set up to do, where you know they're just teaching you that one thing. But if a college, if the role of a college is really to teach you the the you know, critical thinking and the problem solving and the, the theory underneath it, then no matter if it changes to Python or, you know, Raspberry or whatever is the next new thing, you're going to be able to go, oh, I can see the, the connections and the relations. And I, I know how to take what I learned over here, apply it over here, link the connections and make and move on and move forward. Yeah. So we're teaching them how to, you know, evergreen their skills. So it's not necessarily any more about if you take a history class, it's not about the timelines and the dates and the facts. It's about how do I make room for historical perspectives on all sides of the spectrum? How do I, how do I think critically and analyze what I'm being presented with so that I can make good decisions going forward? Yeah. And if you think about it, if that's, if it's, if you're just teaching that foundational bit, it's like learning how to learn, and then it could be a lot shorter, right? I mean, you don't necessarily need to do, do that in four years or even two years. It's like, if you, if you, Focus on that as okay. We're we're prepping you. We're giving you the foundation so you can go off and learn on your own. Then that's a, a lot less time. But does that mean if I created this magical one year degree where I you come out and you're ready to learn, um, will will employers look at that and go, "Yep, that's good. You know, we want to hire you." Or it's like, no, that's that is not enough. Yeah, education. that's another good. Yes, good questions. Um, because what is you know when employers looking at a stack of resumes. The old model says, do they have a degree in the field that I want them to have a degree in, right? Um, and then from what college? And, mm-hmm. You know, you've got your Stanford, lo- your banner behind you, which is great. Yeah. Um, but a lot of 
of um, companies right now are suggesting they're, they've actually come out and said like, we're not requiring degrees anymore. Just mm-hmm. prove to us that you can do this. We'll give you a, like a skills assessment or a live, like, you know, practical test. If you yeah. can do it, then you've got the job. So that yeah. opens the door in a lot of new ways. One, it really also changes the game for education of like, if, if our credential isn't needed anymore, what does that mean for, for us? But, you know, two, I think there'll always be a place because without it, without the degree, you're right about it being self, self-driven and not everybody is ready to take on that level of learning by themselves on YouTube. They could, and there are people that do it and they can get their job at Amazon or Google or any of the tech giants. Um, great for them. That's, yeah. that's wonderful. It's actually a great equity move too, to increase access um, without the ivory tower of needing a degree. I think it's, I think it's lovely and wonderful. There's, you know, suggestions around badges and certificates and what, but ultimately it will always be up to the employers to say like, this is what makes your experience valid in my eyes. If it doesn't work for them, they're not going to go with it. Yeah. A lot of companies right now are going with, they're training their own people. They're, they're mm-hmm. hiring people and saying, we'll put you through our own training program. That is another market signal for colleges to go like better pay attention. Google, oh, yeah. Boeing, they all have their own internal training programs. Yeah. That their their employees go through. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and if you think about it nowadays, people really do learn through um, YouTube, right? I mean, I I guess like a couple of examples. I remember going golfing with this guy and he was phenomenal, phenomenal golfer. And I said, well, you, you take lessons or, you know, how did you do this? He goes, well, I just, I watch YouTube videos and I practice. That's all I do. And it was, it reminds me of that a joke on Big Bang Theory. I don't know if you saw that, but uh, Sheldon taught himself how to swim by watching YouTube. And I'm like, how, do you, how can you teach yourself to swim by watching YouTube? Yeah. yeah. He, was, he was thoroughly convinced that he was going to, he would be fine on a boat because he, he, he learned how to swim through from YouTube. And it's like, really? <laughs> it mm-hmm. doesn't seem possible. I know. I know. Yeah. I had an experience like that. I was in Hawaii with my kids for the first time. I took my kids there and we're on the beach and I bought them a boogie board. They'd never seen the ocean, never seen the ocean. Mm-hmm. And so they, wow. you know, they didn't really understand the waves and the currents. And um, so here's my 15 year old son on the beach, G- DIY Googling, how do I boogie board? <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought, just get in the water and feel it and try it. And, but for him, his answer was like, I should look this up on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what do you think is, uh, it seems like there's there's this uh, bunch of forward-thinking employers that are into it, right? They understand mm-hmm. that education is changing and they're not getting what they want from p- people who are coming out now. But then there's a, a huge cadre of others who are like, okay, they need this, they need this, they need this. What has to happen for them to understand that this is a new world? For employers or students? Yeah. Well, for both. I mean, what do, what do we need to, what do you, what, what do schools need to do to prove to employers that this one-year degree with self-teaching mm-hmm. is just as good as a four-year degree? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is hard. And, and if you're working, if you're building your programs hand in hand with industry and business, then I think your, your luck of, or your, your outcomes of success are going to be better. So if you are building, so we just built a, um, a four-year bachelor's degree with, alongside Boeing. So if you know anything about the Northwest, Boeing is a huge um, yeah. Mecca employer out here. Um, and so we, we built that together with that program or that program with, with Boeing. Um, and so they got to have direct influence on 
on what oh, training goes into that and what curriculum and what they need for, go for their future. Um, and so I think that's probably a really good measure of success. Um, if they don't know about it, I guess it's, you know, it's really trying to, to get them on board, get them on your campus, get them in your classrooms with your faculty to say, look what we're doing, would this be of interest to you? So anytime we start a new program, we have to do labor analysis and, and figure out, is there a need for this? Is it in demand? Are there, are there you know, only three jobs posted in the past year or are there 3,000? And what's the, you know, so we have to use that as a guide too to kind of have that foresight. Are we on the right track? Right. So are you are you working with employers in that way in that regard? Then are you going going to employers and saying, hey, let's design, let's design a program with you, mm -hmm. so that we can create people who are perfectly who are perfect fits to where you want where what you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we try to whenever we can. I think that you know it's harder to do that with transfer programs because really where we're where we're aligning them is their their institution they're going to transfer to. So it's University of Washington or. Um, UCLA or wherever they're going. But if it's a professional field, a technical field, then um, yeah, wherever we can, we, we try to work with industry and say, what's a need? What are needs? And how can we get ready for that? How can we prepare? So something you know, that we might be looking into in the, in the upcoming future, in our area, we've got a big light rail coming in, uh, like a mm -hmm. construction project. It's gonna be probably a 20 year project for our area and for our county. Um, and there's a huge need for, for a workforce for that. So yep. who better to work with than your local community colleges to set up pipeline programs with the city, with the county, with your, your sound transit or your community transit partners um, to, to develop that pipeline for when you need it. If you know it's yep. coming, if you can read the signals and know what's coming um, in the future, you can, you can try and get ahead of it and, and develop a program in time. Do you think you guys, do you think you guys in that space or like not, not the Stanford's, but in your space, do you think you guys are actually leading the charge, bringing in new technologies and new, new ways of, or new paradigms of education? I think we're more nimble. I think mm -hmm. community colleges can be more nimble than a big flagship institution. I think they are so big and some of their funding is, you know, they've got these big research wings, which are awesome and, and have, they bring great things to our, our they advance health and medical and things that the community colleges don't do. Um, but what we can do is we're a lot less bureaucratic and we can cut through red tape much quicker and easier and say, sure, let's develop a program for this you know, transit product. Do we need right. a logistics program? Sure, we can do that in a year. Yeah. Whereas the, the, the bigger colleges have a harder time with that. So you find that have you worked in other companies where in an, other innovation groups in other companies or just just in education? Just in education, yeah. My whole career has been in education. I've worked in um, four-year publics, four-year privates, and then two-year publics where I'm at now. And have you always been in the innovation space, or have you been? I haven't. I actually started in enrollment management, mm -hmm. um, which is is sort of, it, it led into innovation in that, you know, enrollment management is a lot of foresight. It's a lot of strategic foresight of trying to figure out who are your next batch of college students in tomorrow, right. and then who are the right. next ones in 10 years? What program right. do you need in order to maximize your enrollment, your market position, your, you know, your market share with how close the next neighboring college is to you? So all of right. those kinds of things led into um, monitoring and doing this, this continual environmental scan. Mm -hmm. um, and 
then I, you know, in incoming had a new president that was really all about innovation and, and ideas and leaning into the future. And I think that we just, we really um, work well together and just kind of hit our stride and said, let's, let's do this all in. Fantastic. So are you, are, do you find that there's more ideas coming from the bottom up or from the top down? Hmm. They're coming from all over. We, <laughs> we built an idea lab on our campus. Um, oh, nice. Is a loose term. It's a group, <laughs> right? It's not really a place. It's a group. Um, but it's, it's a virtual place. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's faculty and staff that um, apply to be a part of this idea lab. And that's basically what it is. It's just a think tank for the college. Mm -hmm. So we really emphasize that we want all levels of the organization, um, all departments, cross-functional, you know, so you've got faculty mixed in with people that work front counters for financial aid with people that, you know, nice. might, um, do the IT servers in the basement of one of the buildings, but you've got them in a room and they provide such a diverse perspective that you can get some of that bottom up ideas. And our president has set it up uniquely in that this group is selected, you know, it's selected by him, but it has a, a direct voice is mm -hmm. to his ear, right? He's, so they're gonna go right to, you know, that he'll hear the ideas first, um, but then they, we've actually already started implementing some of the ideas that come out of our idea labs. So it's, um, it's getting a lot of traction and a lot of support and a lot of um, backing from our campus community. But that's amazing because that most innovation groups are always struggling against uh, leadership. You know, they're like, yes. you know, leadership is going, oh, we need to do this. We need, we need to increase enrollment. We need to, you know, bring in the, prof you know, increase profitability, et cetera, et cetera. It's like innovation is just a distraction, but it sounds like it's more core to your mission. Especially yeah, I mean, I won't, I won't lie. There is, there is a rub, right, between um, innovation and your operational leadership. So your mm -hmm. operational leadership is, you know, I want to do the best job that I can do with what I have with our systems in place and don't rock the boat and let's keep this ship going, right? Yeah. And then you've got the innovation person that's like, what if we blew up everything and tried <laughs> this thing, right? Of course, you're going to get those leaders. What's the happy are, medium between those two, right? Stop. <laughs> <laughs> they're just going to, you know, they're, they're naturally going to feel anxiety and, you know, um, resistance to, to disrupting what's, what is. And yeah. so there, there's a constant rub of um, the, the innovation side and the operational side. It's a healthy tension, but it's not easy. And it's, um, I think I credit some of my, you know, change management experience. So I, I you know, I'm a ch uh, change practitioner through ProSci. Um, which I use sometimes, but I mix it with some other um, theory and methodology for my own, you know, it, it's all about the, the people piece and trying to lead through it the best you can. Leading change, it's, it's all about how well you do in that arena, whether or not your innovation or your change is actually going to be adopted yeah. or stick or, you know, or get, get traction that you need. Yeah. If you ask me, it's all about change management because totally is. You can't get, it, it's like the technology is simple. Anything that you can do, you, anything that you can envision, you can probably do with technology. It's getting the people to mm -hmm. get on board. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like what happened when they changed Windows. So window, remember Windows 3.1 and Windows, uh, Windows 95, there are all these different versions of Windows. And it turned out that it cost them more to retrain than, than like when they replaced the, the interface, it costs them more to retrain people on the new interface than the actual software itself. So a lot of companies were holding back on upgrading to 
latest, greatest, most secure version of the software because the interface would be so different that they would have to put so much money into training mm -hmm. that it wasn't worthwhile, which is why people go, oh, there's no innovation in these spaces anymore. Yeah, because the people can't handle the change. So if you can get yeah, people to yes. handle the change. <laughs> 100% agree. A lot of my time is spent on, the, on moving people from one yeah. place to another place before you can, yeah. you can create sustainable change. Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about something really interesting that came out of your lab that's not that's not going to be like totally proprietary that you're going to tell everybody that we shouldn't be telling other other colleges about because they might steal it? Anything <laughs> interesting? <there? Ooh. laughs> I actually um I actually think that the just the the structure itself is pretty um unique for for colleges mm -hmm. to to mm -hmm. I like that we we do have, it's a cohort model, and I do a little bit of teaching um, around futurist, you know, mindset and theory and change management. And um, we do a section on industry disruption and mm -hmm. likening it to what's happening in higher education and, and comparing our industry with others. So I do do some um, instruction pieces to it. And I, I think that what's cool about it is it slowly over time, if I take a cohort of 20 students, 20 faculty and staff really, employees that are going through this program every quarter, then in a two-year period, I will have had, you know, two, let's say, you know, 200 people, 300 people over the years go through this futurist training program that mm -hmm. not only is a byproduct of, of ideas, but also you're changing the culture to be more change with change resilience and mm -hmm. change um, embracing and readiness. And I think that is a really cool byproduct um, because in order to accomplish the levels of change that we were just talking about, you have to have people that are ready to, to embrace it and move it with you. It's oh, yeah. half the battle. It's three quarters of the battle. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about, so the future, it's, it's, it's great that you call it a futurist program because that's, that's the name of the program that I ran at Yahoo about well, like a long, long time ago. They were doing incremental innovation and everybody was going, well, there's nothing big and disruptive here. And I said, okay, well, you know why? Because we're not looking out far enough. We have to go out 10 years and say, well, where are we going to be in 10 years? What, what, what are things going to be like? Who are our customers going to be like? And then if you just sort of reposition the time frame and say, think about things 10 years out, it completely sort of changes people's mindset and they don't think about incremental changes. So what kind of, what kind of tactics did you use to try and try and get people to think about those mm -hmm. further out timeframes and more disruptive things? Mm -hmm. That's a good question because I think, you know, if you take the average um, workers or employees at a college or any place, they're going to want to fix what's around them in their every day, right? They see yeah. things that are going wrong in the organization and they want to fix it. Um, yeah. which is why they self-select to apply for the lab in the first place. But mm -hmm. um, we do try to set out that we are, we're looking for ideas that are um, at a scale of magnitude or at a um, level of innovation that, that makes a large leap. So we differentiate it by offering examples of in our, you know, we don't do, we've given up on our, on a traditional strategic planning model. I shouldn't say given up. We've traded it for a new model that we created ourselves called a comprehensive planning model. Um, where we have, it's, it's a, a low administrative load process where we just refresh our goals each year rather than do this big overhaul, five-year strategic nice. plan. So it's just, a, it's a continually refreshed plan. It's got an operational side and, a, um, and an innovation side. So we'll give examples of like, this is an example of what would go on the operational side. This is a great uh, goal and strategy and, you know, action set for um, the operational VPs to take 
take and move forward. This, on the other hand, is a great example of an innovation that's gonna take us two years to get there. Um, we've got two identified right now. One is we, our first goal um, is to become an entrepreneurial hub for mm. our local community in South Snohomish County. So um, a convener of entrepreneurial resources for startup prototyping um, and innovation. Nice. Um, and our second goal is we call it anytime, anywhere. And that is um, about educational delivery models. So how can we increase access through delivery models that are um, available anytime, anywhere? And we, we actually selected these before COVID. <laughs> so after, after everything happened, you, it was kind of some like, foresight there. There you go. <laughs> probably a year faster on that goal than we would have out of necessity. Um, so those are two projects and those did both come out of our idea lab. Um, nice. as like, this is where, so we combine that with trends. I have them look at trends in higher education, industry disruption, the rate of change, a little bit about the, you know, the, the curriculum piece around futurist thinking. Um, mm -hmm. and then we have just a lot of discussions. So we meet for, um, every week, two hours a week, and I guide the discussions and, um, we take notes and we do jam boards right now, cause we're all at home. So we do digital, um, brainstorming and call outs and I have assignments and homework and like I just assigned them to watch uh, Social Dilemma this week was their, <laughs> their homework. That is so, that sounds like a dream job. It is a dream job. I have to have to be honest. I love my job. Yeah. That's phenomenal. So tell me so this is an entrepreneurial uh, hub is that what you called mm -hmm. it? Yep. Is it, is it basically like an incubator? I mean, can do people um, apply to get into it or how does that work? Well, we're still, we're still developing what that looks like. We're working with our, our local um, partners. Like we have this, you know, the city of Linwood, um, which is where our college is located. So city officials and our local libraries and everybody's kind of in a, in a there's a group that we're, we're looking for input from. Um, I, I think it could be, it's a, it's a, going to be a collection of classes of trainings of workshops um, but also a makerspace. So we have a makerspace already that's on our campus for tinkerers and has big tools that most people don't nice. have in their garages, right? Like your CNC printer? routers you and your, printers? what's that? Do you have 3D printers? 3D printers, plasma nice. cutters, all of it, right? We've got the whole setup. So I love it. we have that. And, and our goal is to try and just, you know, there are, there are entities in our community that offer pieces of, of, and services like our small business development centers and, you know, our economic alliance. And so if we can be a convener of here's where you go, if you've got an idea, come here and we'll be, you know, we've got all of everybody's kind of at the table to help you figure out what's the next, what's the next step. So we'll have some design thinking um, projects and classes. Um, so those might be cohort based, they might be subscription based, they might be um, some certain level might be free. So it'll just depend on, and we may have some workspace, some simulation space we're talking about, um, possibly partnering so that our credit students, our college students can come over through the simulation labs. Like um, maybe it's in our business program. Maybe it's in your, you're going through simulation. So it's hands-on project-based learning for the credit mm -hmm. programs, as well as our community. Cause right now we'd like it to be an open to the whole community kind of setup. Nice. Nice. So in, I'm, I'm really curious about your delivery models. Cause you said you're, you're experimenting with different delivery models and you know, I keep thinking when I think about different delivery models, I'm thinking about like little tiny snippets of education exactly when you need it. I mean, what, what, what kind of things are you thinking about on the delivery model? Yeah, that's a good example. That's, that's one of them. 
So <laughs> our faculty are using little, um, like some video tools to do little snippets of, of just a quick learning topic that maybe is two or like, three. Like TikTok long. learning or something like that. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> That's a whole new, a whole new wing that we're going to start TikTok learning. Um, no, as long I, as the professor is like dancing around, you know, then it's uh, it's all good, right? <laughs> they're getting really creative about um, how do we teach some of the material that's hard to teach online? How do you right. teach music or art online right. when it's like mm -hmm. it really has a, a tactical, a tactile approach to it? And um, so we have faculty that are finding ways to do virtual simulations and um, recordings and, and using technology to really pull you know, people together in, in a way that they weren't ever. Um, and I think those will probably stay. Some of those will stay after, after yeah. we have the option to open up our campus. Right now we don't, but eventually we will, right, to bring people back on campus. Um, so we've also been considering doing like um, video enabled lectures. We're, we're playing with synchronous and asynchronous um, classes. Do we meet at the same time every week online? Do we not? Is it asynchronous? Um, do we do Zoom lectures versus, you know, the traditional online class? We've been teaching online for 20 years, but yeah. we don't typically do a lecture style class mm -hmm. in an online classroom. It's, it's yeah. only in K, the K-12 system right now is doing that. But um, so we're, we're working, we're asking students what they want to see. Um, our faculty are doing, um, you know, virtual business office hours. But also we are looking at the competency-based learning. We're looking at adaptive um, technology, which would allow mm. you to skip ahead digital content, um, apply your real life learning um, to that. I think that's it. <laughs> Those are most, we are looking at maybe AI in, in a Canvas course, which is our um, learning management system. So mm -hmm. maybe we have a, a bot that's inside your Canvas course, your online course that helps you like know when all your deadlines are and your dates. Yeah. And your, different pieces. Well, that actually leads me to an interesting question because we're talking about lectures, we're talking about uh, Zoom lectures, we're talking about webinars, we're talking about all these things where you're talking about group learning, but everybody learns at different rates. And you were talking about adaptive situations. Are, are we ever going to get to the point where basically everybody does an individualized set of training for them and and, you know, maybe they come together to share notes in certain situations, but like 99% of it will be individualized, adaptive to, to the learner themselves. How far away do you think we are from something like that? Well, it exists already in, in oh. several fields, um, but it's not, it's not everywhere and it's not widespread. So there are technologies that do it. They'll basically mm -hmm. take your entire course and then modularize it so that a student can move through it at their own speed. They can back mm -hmm. up, they can spend more time on something, they can go twice as fast as the rest of the class. Um, so you can purchase a, a platform that does that and, and can help you put your curriculum into an adaptive format. Oh, fantastic. Um, so there, yeah, ASU, Arizona State University is using, um, what are they using? Cogbooks, I think is the name of the software. Cogbooks. Cogbooks. I've never heard of them. Yeah, Are yeah. It's, I mean, there's a lot of lot of vendors out there for sure, but um, there are tools. I don't think it's right for every field. I think that, you know, faculty are the best people to decide or to say how their content should be taught and in what in what way and in group settings or individual and you know, there's just like with YouTube, you can learn a lot on YouTube, but you may not want your heart surgeon learning on YouTube, right? 
Well, have you ever heard of, um, uh, I forget the name of the company, but there's a, co- there's a company that does uh, remote surgery machines because hmm. they, they do like very tiny little incisions and they have like all these different uh, tools that can go into them. Intuitive Surgical, I think is the name of the company. Okay. And I remember going to one of their uh, demo rooms and seeing, seeing and you had the, the surgeon on one side of the room and you had the machine on the other side of the room and he was operating on a dummy through this interface and I thought, well, what's the possibility that, you know, an AI can't watch this whole operation and try and replicate some of these, some of these things at the same time. So we might actually get to a situation where, you know, you, you don't need the lecturer anymore. They've totally um, digitized, you know, like Jar Jar Binks and Star Wars or something like that. And then they can come in and they can do their, and they'll just do it yeah. at any time and place, whatever, whatever it needs to be done. Yeah, so. maybe that, that may be the way of it. I think that automation is the next new thing, right? Like we're, you know, even thinking about teaching in automation of teaching, for instance, like surgical, um, surgical robotics. And I think that down the road, even in like aerospace, we have a lot of aerospace out here is automated. And so all of those robotics and machines, people fear those as a replacement for workforce. Will it someday replace our workers? And I'm not of that mind. I don't think it will. I think it actually will just help us to go to the next level and use our human intelligence in ways that AI can't. Um, But I always think that automation is, it always has to have a human handler, you know, for Mm -hmm. the ethical sides, for professional judgment, for, you know, all of those pieces. But so I always, I think there will be still a place for faculty and professors and learning. And um, even if it's assisted through technology, there's yeah. something about having a somebody to talk to, a teacher, uh, somebody who cares about you and knows who you are. And yeah, and it's interesting because I think I think what's going to happen there is that uh, we're going to see this. I think a lot of people are worried that they're going to lose their jobs to automation, right? But if you lose your job to automation, that's actually not a bad thing because it means that particular role is so compartmentalized that uh, you know some automated process can do it. So that means it's actually probably not a good enough job for a human being to do because right. human beings have so much capacity. Yep. You know, it's like we're you're doing this little job. For example, Uber driving, right? So a driver, you know, if there's if there's if there are uh, autonomous vehicles that can actually drive as well as or better than human beings, then wouldn't it be better to take that big brain that's sitting behind the steering wheel and have them do something that's more suited to a big brain and not you know, driving a car around. Yeah, so exactly. it's like, I loved, I'd love to see that where people become more human. Mm-hmm. They, they, they get away from those cog jobs, which is mm-hmm. funny to mention because <laughs> they get away from the cog jobs and they become, and they become more human jobs. And that leads me to my next question is on uh, the humanities. Are you going to, are you seeing that there's going to be more emphasis on that as opposed to the technology jobs? Is it because of AI or are there other reasons why we may be moving in that direction? I think a lot of people would speculate that that humanities is not as important as like say the the deficits or the the really drastic need in STEM fields. Like people will right. talk at length, especially in the Seattle area, about the number of STEM jobs that are going unfilled every year. Well, you and guys are in a very technology. We are. Focused. We're in a very right. technology. Silicon Valley. We're we're the same. <laughs> yes. Yes. However, I I do I am a believer in our humanities as well, and I think that you know you can train skills. In tech and tech skills as much as you want, but if without the that critical thinking, I think that comes through our humanities and it comes through our um, the level of analysis that we're looking for in our next generation of leaders and our next generation of of 
geniuses and problem solvers, they've got to have the, some of those deeper skills than just um, how to create and program a drone or yeah. whatever they're working on. Um, so I think we're going to come full circle with it. I know that right now it sometimes gets a bad rap in um, in media as like you know we need to focus on fully on STEM, um, yeah. STEM only. But I I think that we're gonna we're gonna return to it, especially you know after watching the social dilemma, you start thinking about like the ethics ethics side of any innovation. Of you Absolutely. know I even was considering whether I I should have an ethics board or an ethics advisor for my idea lab, just to make sure that I were really thinking about the ethical implications down the road for any innovations we're suggesting. Yeah. You know what you need is a chief philosopher. I think everybody needs a chief. That's a great job title. (laughs) In fact, fact, if you think about it, I think, you know, every leadership team should include a chief philosopher, which which includes ethics and epistemology and everything around the philosophy degree, because we've been, we've been stepping away from it for so long. And I think that's might be part of the problem with all of our ethical dilemmas right now is that we're not actually thinking about those, that side of it. We're just thinking about the profit motive. We're thinking about, you know, other things and we're, 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 we're stepping away from the, from the, from the ethics and other things in that space. Um, so one of the things you mentioned earlier, I thought was interesting. You said something about um, looking far forwards and then working backwards. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm a huge believer in taking the maze backwards because you know, it's much easier that way. Right. So how do you work that? Is that like an exercise you do or is it something? Like- yeah. It's kind of like what we do, you know, with students versus like what I would do in the idea lab is to say, envision the future, the future that you want. And our president often will, will say this is think about the future that you want your students to experience in this department or in this office or at this college, depending on the scope of your project. Um, and then think about that really without borders, without boundaries and limitations on budget and like, what would it be like? And then once you really can describe that, what you wish it could be and that end state and that future state, then you start working backward and say, okay, what would it take to get there? How long would it take to get there? And what are the changes needed to start plotting our way to make it happen? Um, and, and it's, it's better to do that without borders than it is to try and do, you know, I, I prefer that than incremental improvements on what you have now. Yeah. That's just going to get you, you know, maybe more efficient now or with what you have, but not yeah. a leap in a new direction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's actually what something my company does. We have this thing called a 10 year backcast mm-hmm. where we basically say, okay, tell, yes. tell me what, tell me what you want. Tell me, you know, envision the world in 2030, right? Envision where your customers are going to be, where, the world's going to be where your industry is going to be, everything, right? M- imagine that. And then once we have that nailed down, they go, okay, let's work backwards. Let's go back. You know, if that's the world that's going to be here in 2030, then where do we need to be in 2027, in 2025, in 2022, yeah. in 2020, exactly. so that we can get to that point? So it sounds very similar to what you were, what you were talking yeah. about. I, I do think it's important, though, to root, to root it in um, a realistic foresight, too, you know, because right. sometimes you'll take a group of people and say, where do you want to be in 2030? What's the future? And you'll get people going into real sci-fi realms, right? Of like, yeah, exactly. oh, you know, flying cars and, fly, you know, and it's like, oh, that's great. But, you know, you have to sort of take into account all of the different market signals you're seeing and what's the trend and what direction and what do you, so there's an article that I have them read that, you know, talks about the difference between waves and currents. So mm-hmm. like, is this trend, is it just a wave that's going to go and go away or is it a current that's like moving an entire movement forward? So how do you tell the difference? Excellent. Excellent. I love, I love the sound of that. So speaking of 2030, 
where do you think things are going to be in 2030? Where do you think your industry is going to be in 2030? Let's see. So that is 10 years from now. 10 years from now. What will education be like? Huh. I think that there's going to be a mix. I do think we're going to see a lot of colleges that will close or merge. I think we'll see a lot of mergers. Um, yeah. I hope that we will see mergers of two years and four years together institutions mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. so that it's all one shop. You know, it's, you've got your two-year programs and your four-year programs and it goes seamlessly together. Um, I think we'll see modular. I think we, we will have to respond to the to need to get people in and out and off to their goal quicker than we do now. Um, right. Because I also think that that's what students are looking for is um, I want to get, I'm coming to you college because I want to get to point A or point Z and I'm at point A and I want to get there as quick as I can. Yeah. I don't have time to swirl and go like through the alphabet and back again. And so that's a shift in, in consumer culture. So we've got to figure out, and that's, there's a, a reform, academic reform called pathways. And it's kind of like mm -hmm. putting bumper rails on a student's experience so that they stay on their path, get all the way to the, to the finish line and successfully out the door. Right. Um, I would, I would love to see more educational programs tied to um, industry where they would come right out into an entry-level job. Mm-hmm like as a part of their education is that they have a placement in, in somewhere kind of like an, an um, apprenticeship. I was actually yep. in the idea lab this week and they were saying, you know, isn't it funny how the 16th century model of apprenticeships is back. And oh, I'm totally, I totally believe in that model. I think we yeah. should absolutely hit that hard because it works, right? Because I mean, nine, nine times out of 10, what you want is that on the job training with you know, an expert in the field because they, they know things that you're not going to get in education. And plus it's like we were talking about before, you know, you're, you're getting the latest and greatest knowledge of what's happening today, as mm -hmm. opposed to, you know, what the educational system thinks you need to know, right. you know, you're getting, you're getting today. So I, I think, you know, apprenticeship programs, you know, everything old is new again and it worked. That's why, that's why they did it because it worked, not just because, they, you know, they didn't have access to education. Yeah. I'd say yes. And, cause I don't know that it works for what's tomorrow. It's happening. Right. What's happening today, but how do you apprentice for something that's not here yet? Yeah. Well, I love that. I mean, um, there's this famous futurist, Thomas Fry, who says, we're going to lose 2 million jobs. And it's like, yeah, but we're probably going to gain four, but yeah. we don't, just don't know what those are. Like you were saying earlier. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Man, well, this is this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. This has been great. Um, any any final words or final thoughts on where things are going in your space? Hmm. Well, I'm. I just thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on. I know that you don't have a lot of higher ed listeners, maybe, but um, I hope it's been insightful and and it fits in with all the other disruption that's happening everywhere all around us. And none of us are are isolated in that. It's all connected. So the health, the, you know, the, the disruption that's happening in healthcare, that's happening in information management, like just how we get information and communicate information across the world, all of that is being disrupted and it all impacts education and college. And um, so we're just part of that bigger ecosystem. So I appreciate being at the table and part of the conversation. And um, I look forward to watching some of your future casts and well, yeah, we should probably do this again because education is one of those things that's close to my heart. And I know 
there's disruption will definitely help it. The question is, what kind of disruption does it need, and what's the best way to get it get, get it happening? And yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'd, lo I'd love to talk more about that. You know, in That's future. That's great. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. You're yeah, nice to meet talk you. To you later. Okay. Bye. bye.